Okay, so uh, hello. Uh, my name is AJ Lewis, uh, and I will be having a conversation with Miss Major Griffin Gracie uh, for the New York Trans Oral History Project uh, in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Oral History Project. Uh, this is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans identifying people. It is December 16th. 2017, mm -hmm. uh, and this is being recorded in Midtown Manhattan. Oh, Midtown Manhattan, yeah, Radisson, right? Radisson. At the Radisson. Um, hi. <laughs> hey, baby. Um, you want to just um, just to start by you know introducing yourself for the recorder and like, well, tell the us. recorder. You just said it, Miss M I S S major, <laughs> um, and uh, I'm an elder transgender uh, person, uh, seventy. Or so years old and still alive, still kicking, still chasing boys, <laughs> and back in New York City for a moment. Uh, well, we're, we're very happy to have, to have you telling your stories Thank this you. evening. Um, I, you know, I should have said before I turn this on, um, I take notes just to like help me remember you can things. Child, um, I'm in your hands, so just, you're not in mine. Th that's what I'm doing, just okay, taking notes of things to follow up on. So you in um, my hands, you'd be naked, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can, um, can we start with, um, tell us where, you're, where you were born, where you're from, and what growing up was like? Born in Chicago, uh, Illinois, and um, growing up was cool because my, my both my parents, my father and mother, from my entire life while they're under their care, and uh, being a young, trying to figure out what the fuck I was person at that time, was interesting, but hard, and uh, helped me get my nerves together to venture out from Chicago, and uh, do my own thing. Mm -hmm. Say a little bit more about trying to figure out what the what the fuck you were at the time, what that was well, like. Well, <laughs> trying to sort out just who I was. Uh, you know, you all, you feel uncomfortable when you're early in a, your early ages as a trans person. You don't know. You don't have the words. You don't have the experience. You don't know what direction you are are not going. Mm -hmm. You don't know where you exactly fit in. You don't know why you don't feel like your compadres and cohorts feel uh, that you don't have the same point of views on stuff. And so it's a difficult time trying to figure out what all that means, how to pull it together, and how to feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. So trying to feel comfortable and safe was the difficult part. Because once you realized that you were different, then you had to figure out, well, how different are you? And then once that happened, someone else would notice that you were different, and then you're no longer safe. So it was it was a rough time, personally and, and physically. Were there communities in Chicago that you found that you felt like you fit, fit in with? Not at that time, no. Mm -mm. Uh, yeah, man, this is the 50s, you know, and um, things were just very, I don't know, people felt comfortable and at ease. I was an upper middle class uh, black family uh, where you knew your neighbors, you knew all the kids in the neighborhood, um, whatever the number of blocks that comprised your area were, uh, you knew a majority of the people within that group. Uh, other adults knew whose child you were when they saw you and that kind of thing. And so trying to be a part of whatever have you, there just didn't 
wasn't a need for that at that time, mm-hmm. you know. And so people were either under the umbrella of their family auspice and the neighborhood, or they weren't, mm-hmm. you know. So it was, it was comfortable. It was still kind of scary because as a trans person or a different person, you know that you don't fit in, you know. So you're constantly watching for some place to be that you can take a moment's breath and be okay. Mm-hmm. The sad thing is, usually it never comes. Mm-hmm. You know, not to you go through this bullshit and leave, then you find it. And how long um, did you live in Chicago for? Uh, I lived there until I was uh, 18. 18. And if you were sort of thinking of yourself as trans in that time, um, did you like go out to bars or hang out with other folks? No, no. Um, well, I had gone to let I graduated high school and went to college at sixteen, mm. and I got kicked out of college for wearing dresses, and went back to Chicago. Then I tried to go to another college, uh, and couldn't get along with anybody down there, and so it was a matter of there isn't you don't look for matching people. You feel that you're alone, you know. And then you may run into somebody and then, oh, wow, there's two of you. And then you might, they'll introduce you to a friend and you go, wow, there's three of us, us against the world. But as that progresses, then you find out that there's a group of you and that you're part of another family and that you can grow in that and learn. So while there, I met a young, a trans woman, um, old trans woman at the time who got me aware of who I was inside and the person that I was and the little friends that I did meet you know girls stick together and they help each other dress and go out to little house parties because we couldn't go into clubs and stuff at the time Um, and it helps to shape you and help you define who you are and this uh, lady helped me to tune in as to who I was and what I could be my friends would, because I was tall, the friends that I had, if we would go out to a party or something, would put me in Mary Jane flats and uh, a dress and stuff that made me look like a wall, because she was like wallpaper at the time. That's what big women were wearing, you know. And mousy brown hair that made me look like a uh, magpie. So. Kitty, of course, got me to understand that, you know, I'm already tall, so flats doesn't change my height and doesn't alter my appearance. So she got me into three and a half inch heels and dresses that were up to the knee, not to my damn ankle like my friends are doing, and blonde hair. So it's like, oh my God, oh yummy shit, this this be me. And off I was. Ain't look back since. <laughs> so and you, so you hung out mostly at like house gatherings or parties. Yeah, stuff like that. I went to a couple of balls uh, when I could sneak out and go, uh, and they were you know they were a fun time, but they were also a really dangerous place to be because straight people and guys and would go there to watch the girls go in and out of there and see what costumes they had on and stuff and. At the time, you know, I didn't know that you needed to go into those kind of things with a friend because if the crowd catches you by yourself, you're in trouble, you know. But um, it was a good experience to have, you know. I, you know, ran the walkway a couple of times and stuff and found it to be exciting, not my forte, <laughs> but it was something that I could do. And 
I was at ease with. Did you, did you do any particular categories? Um, no. Uh, the, the one that I did do was for walk. Because oh. at the time, I had a hellacious walk. It was just, oh, God. Because there's music in my head that I walk to. So, yeah. <laughs> the nice beat to it, shall we say. <laughs> and um, I had uh, bought a fur coat from uh, Lord and Taylor that I dragged down the runway. And then dry cleaned it and took it back and got my money back <laughs> the next day. <laughs> Which we did a lot of that stuff at the time. Do you remember where in Chicago? Um, it was held. It was held on 22nd Street, Sir Mac Road, hmm. at a, a club up there. Don't remember the name of the club. Were uh, police a problem for the balls? Or police are always a problem for everything, you know. But, um, yeah, they sat outside. They didn't. They don't harass anybody in a major crowd like that because they didn't want anybody to see, you know. But like I said, catch you by yourself, honey, and you're toast. So. But they were there. They were a presence. And you would think that their presence would be a calming thing. But um, like now, it isn't. Them being there make, takes things to a higher level of, oh, my God, i got to really be careful. Yeah. Did they have uh, cross-dressing laws in Chicago at that time? Uh... Yeah, wearing the dress could get you sent to jail immediately. And not really jail, to the mental hospital. So they didn't put us in jail at that time. They felt as if you were a different gendered person in an attire that's not suited your birth gender, then you were a crazy person, and they would take you to jail. Mm -hmm. To a a mental hospital. Um, I was (laughs) taken there a couple of times. Here in New York, I spent a lot of times in Bellevue. Uh, may I ask if you're comfortable describing it, what that was like being institutionalized in Chicago or in New York? Well, in my youth, it was a thing of, oh, I'm going to get out of here. It's not a big deal. But the interesting thing about it was you learn how to manipulate the system to keep yourself safe. You learn what things that they want to hear in order to get them to try to help you. And so a lot of the girls before this even happened to me would sit and we would talk together in groups about what psychiatrists or doctors or nurses needed to hear from us to not berate and cast us aside. Well, that you've always thought that you were a girl. You've always sat down and peed, you know what I mean? And I've always wanted to be a woman. It's so hard to deal with, you know, it, whether you, (laughs) you know, could deal with it or not. And the thing was, once you told people this, there would be that sigh of sympathy. Oh, you poor dear. But you learn to do and say what you needed to say to keep yourself safe and get out of that situation. Do you, do you remember uh, like what the names of any of the places were that you were um, institutionalized? Oh, God, no, that was so long ago. I don't remember. Sometimes I, I don't even know if the buildings are still standing. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I ask little follow-up questions about yeah. facts to sort of help locate yeah, it, but yeah, yeah no problem. Yeah. Um, uh, and did it, like it was like girls the language that you used like to talk about each Pretty other much, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. well, that's who we were. Was it? Because that wasn't in our mind. It wasn't G I R L S. It was G U. Mm-hmm. So. Um, and did, did that those kinds of experiences happen to a lot of other girls that you knew? All of yeah. us. There was no no one missed it. Mm-hmm. It happened to it. Well, not exactly all of us. There were a few that skated through. <coughs> Come from you know money. So they do. They do a lot. They do better than the rest of us, and actually get to be an older person without a record or fingerprints or abuse 
from the police and being handcuffed and having your wrists twisted and shoved up your back and bumping your head as they put you in the back of a patrol car and tripping you as you're walking to the thing and having you fall and scrape your knees, tear your dress and ruin your stockings. But, you know, it'd be what it'd be. Mm. About how long, like, if uh, would you have to stay for if they, like... Well, it would depend upon the judge. They would hold us over, and then they would decide how long you stayed and how long you stayed at that time in whatever hospital that they had sent you to, you know. And if you acted up too bad, they would put you in a 72-hour hold to reevaluate you as a person, and then you may never get out, you know. So that's why you learn what to say to get them to go, oh, she's just going through a typical dysphoria, and she'll be all right if. Oh, okay, yay. Yeah. Uh, so you said um, you were in Chicago till you were 18. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Um, did you move to New York City from Chicago? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my mother had told me that Chicago was not big enough for the both of us. My uh, uncles caught me downtown in the loop looking off of State Street mm-hmm. and um, called and told her, I saw your crazy-ass son. He's wearing a dress. My mother drove down. Her and my dad chased me down, mm-hmm. threw me in the back of the car, took me back to their house on the south side, and let me know, you can't be here doing this. We live here. Chicago's not big enough for the both of us. Uh, did you learn about hooking from your, fr- your friend? His name was uh, Kitty, is that right? Not from Kitty, but from the other girls. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we have to teach one another. Mm-hmm. No one else, you know. And how are we going to survive? You c- we couldn't get a job. And at the time, I thought I couldn't get it because I was young. But I couldn't get a job because I was who I was. You know, it didn't matter how old I was, you know. I had, I didn't get a job until AIDS came along. Now, <laughs> now I'm 50. <laughs> oh, taxes, what the fuck are those? <laughs> Uh, and that was that mostly what like the other girls you knew did. They also mm-hmm. were, were working girls. And that's all we knew how to do. You had to learn how to hook, learn how to boost, learn how to steal, learn how to con. Uh, you learned how to suck a dick with the guy's pants on the floor of the car, dip into his wallet with two fingers, roll out money without his wallet ever leaving his pants, send him on his merry way, and you have his money. He came, and you're okay. Wow. So, yeah. It was definitely a school of hard knocks. Yeah. Um, if, you, if you're comfortable talking about this, um, did you, like when you were in Chicago or after you moved to New York City, mm-hmm. um, were you like looking into sort of like ways of medically transitioning, as I guess as we would call it now? Well, you know, after Christine Jurgensen came along in the late 50s, I w- wanted to get hormones. Mm-hmm. I didn't think about changing anything. And due to the flavor of the time, I think any of us uh, girls thought, oh, we wanted to be another Christine Jurgensen and be a real woman and be okay in the world, you know, forgetting that we're never going to be okay in the world uh, and that she wasn't either. She was in a good position, but it wasn't easy for her either, you know. And so, no, at the time, you know, you, you don't think about that. When I went to New York and met some of the girls there, I found out about the doctors to go to and things to take and that kind of stuff. So, of course, I got on hormones and then found out what those do and started to live my life and figure out just what it is that I wanted to do. Getting a sex change is like in the back of your head, you know. But what New York did to me was it um, woke me up and let me know I really don't need to have a sex change. If I use what I have 
with the right people. I can keep what I got and still be the prettiest thing in a pair of heels. <laughs> so they knocked my dick in the dirt early. I was a happy bitch for a very long time. <laughs> uh, what was it like going to New York? Well, it was exciting. And at the time... Like asked, do you know like a, roughly like what year it was that you oh, first moved? Sixty two. Sixty two. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what it was. That's what I remember. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure, but yeah, it was around that time. And New York was oh, New York was cooking. I mean, it was a really rough time as far as the United States went. When um, uh, women were banding together, blacks were banding together, everybody was wanting their piece of the apple pie and fighting to make sure that they got it mm-hmm. and so it was um, interesting and exciting and the air was tingling with change mm-hmm. you know and people were protesting over the Vietnam War you know and I don't know the guys are coming back from the arm from over there hooked on drugs and ha- coming to 42nd Street and hanging out with the girls and stuff but that was the best place to buy their drugs you mm-hmm. know and then you got to know those guys and spend time with them and they were they were like guys had been in prison they didn't have a problem being with the trans girls you know they wouldn't walk down the street and hold your hand but you know you take what you can get you know if that's your stimulants of love ooh daddy love me baby mm-hmm. you know? so it was cool you know um, the, I think the hard part at the time was being with the guys from Vietnam because so many different things the system never helped them get over. Uh, noises would bother them. Uh, they mostly, most of them couldn't sleep through the night, and they would have panic attacks and get upset um, if a cat would scream, or they would think that they're in the middle of the war, and jump out the bed and run to the corner and scare the absolute shit out of you because they think that you're the enemy, you know, mm-hmm. or uh, wake up in the middle of the night and they're choking you because they think that you snuck into their camp. You know, so you learn how to talk them down from that and get them to calm down and relax. And so, but uh, they were still, it was still exciting, you know, still worth doing. Do you hang out with uh, vets like mainly, were they Johns or like? Were they they were just vets like, that came, to, you know, came around the street, you know, because you would see them and some of them were just as cute. Because, you know, they were young people. Mm-hmm. These weren't older uh, people. At, you know, at that time, these are kids that they send off to war. And so when they come back, they'd be like 21, 22 years old, still babies, you know. And they'd be just walking 42nd Street because they didn't have any place to be. There was nowhere to be safe, you know what I mean? And there in the village, you could just go and scoop them up, you know. So, you know, a lot of times, you know, we would, some of the girls would do that for trade or because just to help. You know, so interesting. It was an interesting position to be in at the time. Uh, where were you living when you first came to the city? When I first came to New York, I was on Eighty Third and Amsterdam. Hmm. What was it? What was the neighborhood like then? It was cool. I was, there was a school across the street. My apartment was on the third floor. It was a railroad apartment. It was four bedrooms. So I went from nothing to a four bedroom apartment in New York City. Oh, all to yourself? Oh yeah, I oh, was my. happy. Just a happy clam, honey. <laughs> And then I started meeting those guys and had a couple of guys stay with me. And, you know, you do what you have to do to get the best sex that you can get and hang on and survive. And some of them was okay and some of it wasn't. You know, it was kind of scary off and on. But um, 
that's how everything was going. And so if everything is happening like that, you don't feel as if any of it's different or it's odd or it's dangerous. It's just the way that it is. Uh, and what were the um, girls that you hung out with? Like, like how did you meet them? Or? Well, when I first came here, I bet I would just go out, you know, at night and and walk around, get dressed, you know, throw my shit on, and just go walk down Amsterdam Avenue. And met one or two girls. I'm, I'm new in town. How you doing? You know, God, my name at that time was Snow. Oh, what a terrible name. But um, and then they would talk to me and take me then introduce me to other girls. Meet me a couple of days later, you know what I mean? I learned the good areas to hook in and areas that weren't the area that she was working, you know. Because being a new girl, you don't want to work somewhere where there's an older girl because a new girl's going to get John's. So they tell me where to go, you know, you know, stuff like that. And so I hooked to survive so I could keep my apartment and it grew from there. I had a girl move in with me and then the two of us carried on for a while. And New York became home. Yeah. Did you go around like 42nd Street to work? Who didn't go to 42nd Street? <laughs> and you don't go to 42nd Street to work. You go to 42nd Street for boys, for drugs, uh, for party, and for the theater. You could, oh, and the movie theaters. You could, if you could time it right, you could work during the week and like, which week means Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, go to the movies on like Tuesday or Wednesday, and if you planned it by the schedule of showing movies, you could hit all the theaters, hopping across the street and see every major movie that was out in one day. You Did know? you have a favorite movie then? Oh, I don't even remember. There was <laughs> there were just so many at the time, because um, mini skirts were coming into fashion. The movies were talking about uh, the war, um, and there was some really funny things going on. The uh, laughing was on TV and became really popular. So, um, anything in particular? No, I think the movie that always sticks out in my mind about New York is A Funny Thing Happened to Me on the Way to the Farm. Mm. That's <laughs> so many things about that movie remind me uh, of New York City at that time. Uh, so, it was... It was <laughs> New York was great. Mm-hmm. What other areas did you hang out in? Uh, well, I went just about everywhere because you know with this with the subway, y'all. There's nowhere you can't go. You know, ev- you know everything is is open and available to you. You know, and so um, I wound up hanging out in the village because I heard that's where the young hippie kids hung out and stuff. So I went down there, and that's when I met Sylvia and uh, Marsha. And the interesting thing with them was they were more aware of uh, the politics of our existence than I was at the time, you know. And they were trying to help the community and help the younger girls, younger than even us, who were coming there to hang out and probably keep them safe, get them food, you know, to let them know where to go to have shelter, to be safe, you know, not in harm's way. And... um, they, you know, had started an organization to help us that uh, was really wonderful, uh, called STAR. Uh, and, uh, you know, because of the lifestyle, most of us had, you had to get involved with drugs because you had to be out at a time when most people are sleeping. 
you know, at, and you have to be out during the day because you can't be where you are at night safely and sleep. So, and having to go through all of that, you need something to keep you going. And so a lot of the girls were either doing drugs or drinking, you know. And the community around always berated the people us for doing that. You know, how horrible we were, and that made us drug addicts and junkies. No, that made us people that needed this shit to survive. You know, we weren't doing this for fun. You know, it wasn't something that we did because, oh, God, I don't know what to do with that. Oh, I'll just shoot fucking drugs, you know. And so through that premise about us, they berated us and read us a lot and dispensed those white fags down there, you know. Those little arrogant chauvinists who said, probably yet white privileged motherfuckers gave us a whole bunch of shit on a regular basis, you know, mm-hmm. which they still do, you know, so. One would think that pretty much everybody was doing drugs then also. Yeah, oh, well, no, they were doing it delicately. The, they weren't the, doing drugs. <laughs> they were doing things to enlighten their mind. Yeah, uh-huh, okay, take your mind, get on your knees and suck their dick like the rest of us and quit fucking bullshitting us. Did you all have preferred drugs? Well, at the I can't say at the time that what the <laughs> well, there was quaaludes. <laughs> Those don't really exist anymore. Oh, God, there was quaaludes, and then there was these uh, uh, uppers called black beauties. Oh God, they were. They're kind of like the commercial you hear today, where Red Bull gives you wings. <laughs> Fuck a wing. Black booty put you in a jet airplane <laughs> to go where you needed to go and get there quickly. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, what were uh, Sylvia Rivera and my Marsha Johnson like when you met them? You know what? Sweet. Really cool people. Um, loud argumentative, you know. Uh, at the time, you know, you could see a girl couple <laughs> couple streets up and yell at her. Hey, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, so loud, obnoxious, somewhat annoying uh, to a lot of the people. But for us, that's just the way that it was, you know. And you do what you need to do to survive. Yeah. Were were they doing stuff with um like other queens or other girls um you know trying to like find places to live and stuff before Star or did they get started in that? No, that, before that, Star. I don't know when they started doing all this, but they were there helping each other and other girls for the long before I even came to New York, mm-hmm. you know. And so in meeting them, they were in full swing. They had, you know, a lot of the girls knew and loved them and went to them for help and stuff, you know. And um, they had their trauma, like, you know, trying to find a decent guy. Decent and guy usually doesn't go together for my community, but trying to find one was a nice mission that never came to fruition. But um, we did try on a regular basis, you know, and fall in love and do all the stupid shit that you do to try to keep them. Like have some guy with you uh, and... Who has a job, say, you a bike messenger, and uh, you take him home, and you all have a little affair, he comes by, he moves in with you, and he has to get up at 5 to go biking to do his job. So you get up at 3, shower, shave, paint, put your wig on, throw on a little baby doll outfit, get back in bed and lay by him, and the alarm goes off when you wake up, oh, like you wake up like this every morning, just for him, job. 
That gets tiring. That sounds exhausting. It's fucking annoying. <laughs> and to my <laughs> the reason why I never had anybody was because I wasn't doing it. I'm sorry, you knew exactly who I was when we came here, and you suck my dick, bitch. What's your problem? No, I'm not. You the woman, motherfucker. You just, <laughs> you want to you want a name? Here's the name. <laughs> so, no, I just wound up chasing every boy I could chase, and then, well, time for you to go. <laughs> Which works well today. <laughs> Thanks to rentman.com. I'm a happy little cookie. <laughs> Just call, pay him, and send him home, y'all. No drawers, no cooking, no underwear, no plane trying to pretend to be thin. You know? So, works uh, for me. What were the rest of your friends like? And did you have, like, like sort of people who were especially important in your life? There was a lot of different stories. Like, you know... The interesting thing about my community is there's so many different fractions of us. Mm-hmm. We're like a multifaceted diamond, you know. There's the the girls who um who do heroin and work Ninth Avenue, the girls who drink and work Eighth Avenue, the girls who pass that sex change who <coughs> tried to work on Broadway and Seventh. You know, then there's the girls who were butch enough to work with the boys over on Fifth Avenue. And so I had different girls from each group that I knew and got to know and be friends with. The hard thing at that time was you could never, I could never take one of the girls who I knew worked on the 8th Avenue over to a friend who worked over on 7th. They were not, no. And then they would ask me, the fuck you hanging out with that bitch for? So, yeah, yeah, they were separate groups. And I was more of a, um, I don't know what they used to call them, a lone wolf, you know. Uh, I didn't have best friends or Judy Judy's to hang out with and run around all over the city um, because in coming from Chicago the subway system was really cool here but I had to have a car I was used to driving myself where I needed to go and the subway was really cute but no <laughs> I just wasn't doing it and a couple of times I was on the subway um, dressed going from 85th Street catching the subway over on Central Park West got on the train <laughs> And I'm standing there riding out in August, riding downtown so I could go to 42nd Street and meet one of my girlfriends. And the fan at the top of the uh, subway car caught a hair on my wig and snatched my wig off oh, and no. threw it down the elevator, the subway car. Did anyone get my hair? No. I had to walk down there and pick my hair up. And I said, well, you know what, fuck this shit. Put it in my purse and walked off there anyway. Then got ran ran upstairs and put my hair back on. Subway sucks. Yeah, the fucker. Yeah, people. So, but it was it, after uh, after my car got stolen by some boy I was sleeping with, um, and I had to take the train till I made enough money to get one. The train is it? So so many different people are on it. You know, I had the fortune to eventually get on it during rush hour on the subway where you fought your way on. And you hoped you could get off <laughs> at your stop because those people are trying to get on. So many a morning I missed my stop because the crowd was heavier than I was at the time. But uh, it's a fun thing, you know. And just knowing that it still exists and there's so many millions of people traversed around this entire all the boroughs on them. It's just 
amazing. It's just simply amazing. They've had a lot of problems with delays lately. Well, well, yeah, and rats running everything. And the guys like, oh no, honey, because the rats here in New York, people don't understand. Those rats are big as cats, and they're not afraid of us. You know, you you, know, you can yell at one of them or smack your hand. And they'll turn and look at you like, what the fuck you smacking at me? I'll come over there and bite you and walk toward you. You know what, baby? Come here. <laughs> uh, I read an article this summer about rats on the Upper West Side uh, jumping into baby strollers. Yes. Because oh, of the milk, y'all. And if, you, if you're if in one of those tenement apartments, <laughs> it's not funny, but there was an incident when I was here where this rat had chewed the lips off of this baby. And when the mother came to get the baby, what she picked up was the rat. <laughs> she, she, didn't, she didn't pick up the baby. <laughs> I, mean, I know that that's terrible. Yikes. <laughs> I know that that's terrible, but you know, it's New York. Yeah. Fuck. Um, what kinds of things did you do for fun back in the, the 60s? Hit 42nd Street. Are you kidding? Oh, God. Chase boys, stuck dick in between buildings, you know. Uh, go to all the movie theaters, tease the guys who were in the theaters, <clears throat> reaching, jacking off and stuff in the back of the theater. You went to the porn theaters oh, also? Oh, they, the porn, they do that at regular <laughs> theaters. <laughs> who had time to go to a porn theater? <laughs> you can do that shit to Clark Gable. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, yeah, once my girlfriend turned me on to them, oh, God. Just, it was, it was, it was a whole new world. Like, Oh, Lord, because you never get satisfied sexually with Johns unless you're lucky enough to pick a John that you want to be with and stuff, which usually you can because it's not the John, it's the money. You got to get the money first. Mm -hmm. So in order to pick people that you wanted to have sex with, you'd go to the theater on 42nd Street and get in that last second to the last row and just undip your pants, and these guys just come on their knees going through and just sucking dick <laughs> as they go along. Like, oh God, don't get no cum on my pants. <laughs> so, if we were going out, sometimes we would go there first so we wouldn't get too turned on, you know, while we were turning tricks on Eighth Avenue. So we would pull in there and go get a couple of blowjobs and hold your skirt up over your breasts, you know, and then go to Eighth Avenue, just walk down the block, and either go toward the bus station or go up to our 59th Street. So. Then there were a couple of clubs over there that you could go to as a respite, you know, when you got tired of walking the block and waiting. And in the city, God, in the 60s in New York, it was just fun hooking, especially in the summer, you know, because there were fruit stands outside the bus depot. So you could go there and, like, buy a thing, a bag of grapes or get a hot dog from one of the vendors and stand on the corner eating or rubbing it on your body and having John just slowly cruise by, you know. <laughs> And dancing in the middle of the street to Diana Ross and shit. Oh, God. It was fun. It was fun. Uh, what kinds of uh, clubs or bars did you go to? I went to the bars that had, did the shows uh, because I would do shows and stuff if I um, had the inclination to and stuff like that. And the uh, most funnest one was a club called The Gilded Grape on um, 8th Avenue. Mm. And uh, they were different because they tried to do Broadway theater kind of shows, not just individual girls running up and badly miming some fucking record. They put together little routines and stuff with four or five girls together and, and stuff like that. Kind of like in the movie, um, 
Torch Song Trilogy that uh, Harvey Feinstein did. You haven't seen that movie? I've seen it, no. What? You need to make a note about okay, that tell movie. Me, tell me the name again. Torch Song Trilogy. Harvey Feinstein uh, wrote it and directed it. It was a play. Then it made it a movie. He was in it. Matthew Broderick was in it. Cute movie. And it really touched a lot on what our lives and stuff were like uh, back then, you know. But the, the show was kind of like that. Or the 82 Club that was downtown, you know, where they were, they were sex change girls and trans girls down there. Mm. Not drag queens and not girls who work the street. You know? Interesting. These girls are all done, breasted, hips, snatched, eyebrows, hair, nailed. Uh, yeah, they're like porcelain dolls. Uh, that you couldn't touch. Essentially, yeah. so it was just a bar for like, girls who'd had certain surgery. Yeah, that's whatever. where they could work. Yeah, because mm-hmm. they couldn't work in the regular or in the gay, any of the gay bars they were doing shows. Because mm-hmm. they spent a lot of money on all this work they had done. Mm-hmm. You know? So they were places where the Johns could come and they could get good Johns. Where I would have to turn a trick for 50 bucks, theirs is 250. Mm-hmm. You know? So, difference in social networking, I guess, and stuff like that. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Uh, and do you know like a, about where on Eighth Avenue the Gilded Grape was? No, I don't remember. Like what neighborhood? No. Mm-hmm. I just knew you got off from Forty Second Street, walked over to Eighth, and then walked up the street. So somewhere around. Three or four blocks. Yeah, just down there. And what about the uh, Eighty Two Club? That was downtown on West Fourth Street. West Fourth, interesting. Uh, east. Yeah. East. Um, were you performing also? No, not at the 82 Club. Yeah, no, I was nowhere near as beautiful and done uh, as those girls were. But I performed at the Grape sometimes and at a couple of other clubs. Uh, up on 59th Street, there was a bar up on 72nd Street just around the subway station uh, that used to do shows. And I did it because I lived up there and I could just run over and then run back home. Mm-hmm. So. And what was that one called? I don't remember the name of that club. I don't know if it was Domino's or not. Because up the street was the uh, bathhouse where uh, I saw Ben Midler and Barry Manilow and a whole bunch of other people perform and sing. And the cute thing was they sang <laughs> down by the pool and these beautiful guys are getting in and out of the water, walking around in talls, and then there's these tables in the back for people who just come in off the street to hear the performer and then leave. You know? It was like, what a mixture. It was like, ooh, shelving a deck of cards. What was it like, like seeing Bette Midler in the, in the bathhouses? Well, like, it was, was interesting. Like? Well, oh, she was wonderful. Mm-hmm. She shook it up and tore it down. And she was nasty and vulgar mm-hmm. and just fucking out there. She was like the fag hag from heaven, mm-hmm. you know, at the time. Uh, great person. Uh, Frida Payne was there that I remember. Um, God, Dinah Washington came to another club, uh, up, but that was up in Harlem near Count Basie's uh, restaurant on Lenox. Uh, so you wound up going to wherever you needed to because it was easy to get to and it was okay and comfortable to be out. You mm-hmm. know, the lunacy didn't start until like the 70s because I think the 60s were so people trying to be <coughs> so open and free that the 70s were being <coughs> I guess a generation of where they only cared about themselves you know? I'm sorry the 70s was yeah, the generation the 70s, yeah. Interesting. and so that's when I think the harm and danger and maniacal murdering of us 
took a step up. Uh, and you mentioned that you uh, uh, started taking hormones when you were in New York City also, or at least you were. I started in Chicago. Chicago, in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you find like, doctors well, or whatever? Well, you know, there's a, there's a black market. <laughs> and anything that you need and you want, if you have the money, you can get it. And in Chicago, there used to be this amusement park uh, on the north side, near Northwestern, uh, called Riverview Park. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Everybody knew who lived there that Riverview was a really wonderful and the best amusement park ever, but it was laced with criminal activity from the time you paid your little 25 cents to get in till you ran to your car to go home because they're chasing you. you know? So, yeah, we went up there. One of the uh, girls I knew knew of a doc, a person who knew a person that knew this person who could get us hormones. And so we ran up there and You'd give them like a hundred dollars and get enough pills to take care of two girls yeah, for, for a month. For a month. Yeah, for one month. It's pretty pricey. That's right. Yeah, it was pr- well. Of course, that's what they're doing it for. You know, uh, even legitimacy. I mean, even coming to New York and meeting Doctor Benjamin and Doctor Reich and stuff like that, they were doing great work there. And if I remember correctly, it was Benjamin who coined transgendered as a phrase, and. Um, how at the time people just thought he was just such a wonderful, caring person for our community. And such was not the case, hmm. you know. Um, on a, personally, he um, only did girls that he thought were past. He only did white girls. He only did uh, girls who were between, no one taller than five, six. He would, just wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't help those girls. And so, Taller girls like myself had to find other places. The black girls had to go to other places and stuff like that. So to me, he was an obnoxious old asshole mm-hmm. who, like this thing that's going on now, molested and had whoever he needed to, you know, at the time. And his fellowship of fellow doctors, of course, they don't know what's going on in that office, you know. So he got a bunch of praise, and okay, he was a good doctor. Yay. He coined the phrase, I guess, that's really cute, but uh, what about him as a person? You know, what about the folks that he did damage while he was doing his good and that kind of thing? And that's the kind of thing that nobody, they don't, they don't talk about and nobody really wants to hear about it, you know, but um, yay for what he did and boo for what he was. So you knew yeah. people who were going to him, but you and your friends yeah, mostly no, we try, we girl, we we tried, child. We went there, and the receptionist was very polite and very sweet, but very no, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, no. you uh, he's not seeing you, and at the time, any girl who went to him had to go to him done. You couldn't go to him in your boys' clothes because you out running around in the daytime. You had to be done. You had to be dressed, and you had to have your shit together. So that means you got dressed at home. You jumped in a cab because you can't go anywhere in public. We couldn't take that chance. Directly to his office, get to have the cab stop in front, run inside, say, have the cab meet you when you just went to leave, and then go home. Hmm. So, yeah, but we had we had to find other doctors, which we did. I mean. All of us, at that time, they were popping up all over, you know. It was just a matter of finding a girl to tell you that she found one and going to them. Because no doctor wanted it out that he was serving or taking care of those people, mm-hmm. you know, at the time. And um, Dr. Reich at the time was doing the breast implants and the surgery work and the facial reconstruction and that kind of stuff. 
and uh, he was cool. He was really cool. The interesting thing about going to him is he would do whoever to get his money. It had to be cash. Uh, it had to be a small denomination of bills. And then there was this form that you had to sign before he saw you about the things that could go wrong and that you couldn't sue him for them. And when, <laughs> for me, when I read that list, I took my cash and left the office. There was so much stuff on there about scarring and melding together and one breast going to your knee and the other one staying in place and the surgery <laughs> where your skin's going to turn black forever, you know, and blood's never going to get here and, oh, wait a minute, you know, no, so I never, I didn't go. And some of the work he did was fine. I mean, it didn't happen to everybody, but just the fact that it could and it was so prevalent that you had to sign a waiver, mm-hmm. that was scary. You know? did, did you have, did you know people who had that experience? Yeah, well, I knew lots of people that did. I, I knew one girl, <laughs> uh, used, to, used to call her Pretty Linda, and Pretty Linda went and got a facial surgery done. Pretty Linda wasn't pretty after he was, <laughs> after that surgery. He was a mess, I mean. She was scary, and the funny thing was, <laughs> she made more money than any of the rest of us uh, turning tricks and stuff on Broadway. All the pretty girls would be out, not I can't catch a trick. Linda be hopping in and out of cars, <laughs> left and fucking right, and you see Linda, Linda's purse would be, and her breast would be bulging with with, with money and stuff, you know. And then we went on, I'm knocking Linda in the head, <laughs> but that's because guys who are Johns, they like pretty women, but they're not gonna go talk to them, even with us. You know, if we're too pretty, they'll just look at us, jack off in their car and drive home. But Linda, it was easy. Oh, oh she can get in the car, <laughs> you know, and blow him, steal his money, and they'll go back to her again. No, she took it, because Linda didn't, Linda didn't do finesse. <laughs> no, Linda just, you know what? Bam, give me your fucking wallet, you cocks. Throw his wallet at him, hop out the car. The rest of us, oh, we would never. <laughs> it's like, no, Linda, stop. But she was a good, she had a good heart. Yeah. I, yeah, I got to know her. It's one of those things where you see her and be like, oh, no one wants to talk to her. Oh, I have to talk to her. I need to know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And she was a doll. How long did you know her for? I knew her for five years before she died. You know? She overdosed in her apartment. but She was a cool gal. Really cool gal. I mean, that's what I've learned. You know, you have to... Give people the respect that they're due, you know, and you have, you have to love each other. And I don't mean love them and take them home and suck their dick and play with their pussy. Go home and just, just know the person and appreciate them. That doesn't mean you're going to go dancing, doing the polka down Madison Avenue and stuff like that, you know. It just means understanding who that person is, seeing them for who they are, and appreciating them for that. You know, and you know, all of us aren't going to be beautiful. All of us are not desirable. You know, we're not all model material and stuff. So you know, everybody's not pretty. So y'all embrace the brick, honey. You know what the hell? You don't lose anything by it, and they may feel better. And then what's wrong with that? Where uh, where like girls in Queens that you know, like, did they sleep with each other, or were they just looking for trade? Well, you had to sleep with something, girl. You know, run around with blue balls. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, sleep with each other. So there were some girls, that's all that they slept with, you know. Like, I, 
I knew a couple of sex change girls who only got a sex change so they could get closer to women because they couldn't get the women in their male persona because they were a mess. But painted, they were done, beautiful, you know. So in order to get to women, they went and got a sex change and then could hang out in the clubs with women, the little lesbian clubs. Oh, you have a vagina, that's so cool. And she'd be in there eating them up. Just turn them, just turn happy as a clam after they got you know what I mean? So, different folks, different strokes, you know? Uh, was there a lot of, did you know a lot of, like, queens or girls that were, like, hung out with lesbians or went to lesbian Honey, bars? are you kidding? You have to know them. The community is small, mm-hmm. you know? We all know each other. I moved, after I was here, I don't know, I guess about six months, I met enough, a lot of girls, I knew almost a bunch of us, and there was a building on, um, 84th Street between Amsterdam and Central Park West. Five-story building, of course, walk-up. But that entire building was full of girls. From the basement apartment up to the attic. And there were like, I think, mm, 16 apartments in that building. Studios and stuff. We all knew each other. And the boys knew just stand out front of that building and one of them bitches was going to come down, snatch you inside. Once they got inside, that boy wouldn't see the daylight for a week. When apartment one was through with him, she'd throw him up to apartment six, which was her girlfriend. <laughs> she was through with him. Barbara, I'm through with him. Here's his thing. He's got there, he'd be <laughs> So by the time he got through everybody, then once they kicked him out, don't you come back here. <laughs> One is married fucking way. Use the views tore up. <laughs> uh, but experience, you know what I mean? Yeah. That was the way of the world. But the building was cool. And the, in my mind, the building was like what you'd see in one of those cartoons, older cartoons, where the neighborhood, the buildings are rocking. That building rocked. Aretha Franklin was singing out of every, wind, out of every window in that building. And one they respect. R-E-S-P-E-C-T, you know. And we did fun things. Like in the summers, we would go to uh, Central Park and play softball. And we would challenge a group of boys playing softball. And the winner would have to suck the loser's dick. Well, for some reason, we always lost. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, we could have kicked their fucking ass. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, some, it was a fun. It was a lot of fun. It sounds like folks are like a, the communities are kind of like mixed up and like kind of like well they were because you know th- this is you know what twelve miles long eight miles wide you gotta know what's going on here you know what I mean and with the subway everything is like right next door mm-hmm. and then you can jump on the train up on you know say 110th Street after leaving Harlem you go up there to get some good ribs and good soul food jump on the train get off of 59th Street walk down 9th Avenue turn the tricks on your way get down 42nd Street go to the club have a good time then come out go to the movies then take the train downtown go to Stonewall one of the other bars that accepted us you know what I mean party with friends make plans for tomorrow and go home mm-hmm. yeah. I wanted to work up to asking you about uh, Stonewall you hung out there well, right? yeah, it was a good place to go to after working, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Because every, all the guys were there, all the Johns were there, you know what I mean? And the boys who hooked over on Fifth Avenue, they they all could have advertised in some model magazine. They were all simply lovely, or they couldn't be there. 
no no average guy stood on no corner over there long. <laughs> Those boys would kick his ass and send him on his merry fucking way. So, but they were beauties and they would come there, to, you know, spend their money, pick up one of the girls and stuff. You know, most of them were, um, I guess, bisexual guys. You know, so. It was kind of cool. And they liked the girls, you know, so they hung out with us a lot, you know. Um, some of the, some drag queens and stuff would be there. And I think one of the things that was interesting is the way that the gay men treats us as transsexual women. They were doing the same thing to the drag queens when the queens were in their attire to be feminine. Mm-hmm. When they were in their male attire, that same kind of bullshit wouldn't happen. Uh, like grabbing their ass as you're walking through the crowd to get to the stage or pulling your uh, jock strap or digging in your gap to pull your dick out, you know what I mean? Or play, reach into your bra and pinch your nipples or take your head and push it down. You, they're going to make you suck their dick. When that drag queen is not in her female attire, they don't do that shit to them. You know, so it's this whole misogyny thing that they're doing as guys, um, that guys felt, even to this day, that they can just do because they're guys, you know. With what's happening in the world now where women are taking their power back, that shit ain't going to be happening anymore, you know. And yay, you know, it took a long time to get to this, you know what I mean. And from Bill Cosby on down, you know. And it's the thing of, you know, they did all this shit because... Everybody turned their head, you know. When I listen to the stuff that goes on where the people who work around it go, oh, I never noticed. Yeah, you did. You just knew not to say nothing. You know, what are you going to do? Say something, lose your job, your family's going to go hungry and stuff like that? So it's weird. You going home? Do you remember me? Okay. Okay, baby, see when you come back then. Um, but you found that Stonewall was like pretty accepting... Being in Stonewall, it was just a good place to be. Accepting, hmm. Uh, like most, a lot of the clubs uh, at the time, they were mafia ran. So, it was acceptable for them because of the money. Yeah, And looking back and thinking about stuff, what people fail to realize is, my community is a cash and carry cow. Hmm. You know, because credit cards, what the fuck are those to us? Checking account? No. You know? Uh, paycheck? Tax return? None of that stuff meant anything to us, you know? And we had to live and accept this. And so being outside the law was the only way to be. And so having a place to go to, we want to spend cash. You know, so we the doctors wanted our cash. To go and get the work done, you had to pay cash. To get a hormone shot, had to come with your cash and it was like $50 a shot you needed a shot a week unless you're a greedy girl like some of my friends and I then you went twice a week and then you found different doctors because the same doctor wouldn't give you the shot you know twice in a week so we got together a list of doctors and you'd have to mark off which doctor you went to what day you went what name you went to that doctor as so you had a little file cabinet that with index cards that you'd go through and oh it's Thursday Oh, I'll go see Dr. Barber. Uh, what time? 3.30. Oh, I'm Barbara. Okay, where's Barbara's outfit? 
Did you ever? This is kind of random, but did you, mm-hmm. did you ever know a doctor named who went by Rotten Ralph? Some, a couple people have floated that name to me. It might have been a little later, like I've, in the eighties. I've heard that name uh, when I came back to New York. I don't remember. It, it he may have been around later. later. Yeah. Um, one of the doctors who I do know that was horrible to the girls was in California called Doctor Brown. Yeah, he's very notorious now. And the funny thing about him is the girl that he did to use as his, I don't know, promotional act, Mm. she was absolutely perfect. Her skin was beautiful. She could pass wherever she went. She was about five, six, five, seven. She had the most beautiful skin and hair to her shoulders. She was soft. Her hands were small. She dressed appropriately. She had a great... She could wear a one-piece bathing suit and get by. She was absolutely the most beautiful little thing. And it was just her. Everybody else, he destroyed. Mm. Yeah, they called him uh, like Butcher Brown or Tabletop Brown. Everybody else he destroyed. I had two girlfriends who went to him. Um, and uh, we're never the same you know uh, Alicia stayed uh, after she got better she never came out of her apartment and uh, had everything brought in we had to shop for her and bring her food and stuff and n- never saw the light of day wouldn't open a blind you know it's mm, horrible he's in jail yeah. now Um, uh, I wanted to ask uh, more about Stonewall and the other bars. Is ask like is there an example of like a bar that like was not accepting? Like what that would be like? None of those stag bars were accepting. Not accepting. You so cute. Those motherfuckers didn't want us within ten feet they, they of them. Didn't let you in. No, John. They had no time for us. To uh, to them, we're like the skirt of the earth. You know, I might as well be the black plague, you know, as a black bitch. Simply because they just weren't having it, you know what I mean? And the few, the one or two black guys that they would tolerate um, were just either super built or super fine, you know what I mean? And uh, into the leather scene. Um, And it's like when you see one of them dressed from afar, you've seen them all. The work boots, the jeans, rolled up at the club, flat shirt. Oh, Miss, give me a goddamn break. Have you no style of your own? You know, you have, have you thought about moccasins? <laughs> you know, and, you know, get to know them. Yeah, so then it was Robert. And then you get them home and, you know, my close friends call me Barbara. Yeah, what? <laughs> What's with you? You know, you leave me on this false pretenses. And <laughs> you know, so... And I think the thing is that, you know, I don't know what it, why it is. I just know that it's always been. And this division within the alphabet soup thing uh, has been there, from what I can tell, from time immemorial. Lesbians don't want to deal with fags. Fags don't want to deal with the lesbians. Um, bisexual guys don't want to deal with these. And butch lesbians don't want to be bothered with trans men and 
it's just a big mess instead of once AIDS came along and the government came up with this umbrella that they stuck everybody under, everybody under that umbrella didn't necessarily belong there, you know. But that's what they did. It helped with funding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you can't help transgender women and then label them men, MSM, men and sleeping men. Really? No. You know, my having a dick ain't got nothing to do with my womanhood, bitch. Get over it. You know what I mean? But there's no room for that because their brain can't conceive this, you know. I was doing a speech somewhere lately and was talking about the kind of shit the fags are putting us through. And some gay guy in the audience said, you know what, you, don't, you can't call us fags anymore. We're gay. I said, okay, set your little faggoty gay ass down. Let me say something. You all have been giving my community shit for so long. I'm telling you, you a fag. (laughs) Now, if that ain't enough for you, go to England, buy one and smoke it, and then bring your fag ass back over here. (laughs) So So the experiences were generally bad. Yes, pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty pretty much, you know. And you, there's only so much you can do, you know. Uh, to change it, like you know, and people being all hopped up and happy over Stonewall, oh, that's you know, okay, that's really nice. But having been there and getting my ass knocked out, why wasn't it better for my community afterwards? Why all of a sudden were we still like rugs to the rest of the community? Why was everybody stepping on our shoulders and our back and going, we're the ones that did this, really, you know? Where's the respect, you know? And I'm not asking for, you know, people to jump up and worship and idolize and adore us. I'm just asking you to see the reality here. Who went to this club? You know, the fans aren't going to deny that they had, what, 90 million clubs all over the village. You know, you could just stop for a minute and open up a bottle of beer and it was a, <laughs> it was a gay club. You know, what is this? We didn't have that liberty, you know. There were only a few places we could go to. Uh, And don't want to go to a dance club. Oh, God. With the snorting of the whatever that shit was in the tubes for asthma and stuff and dancing around off of meth. We We weren't allowed in there. And if you went in there and they found you, they would ask you to leave. I had, you know, and not all gay guys are horrible gay guys. You know, I have one or two gay guys that I know and have known for years that are decent people. Decent people. And they oh, come, you know, come, come with me to my bar. We'll have a drink together when I go visit them. And I've been in that bar with them. We may be sitting at the, the bar talking and having a drink. And the bartender will come over and tell me, you know, we're gonna, we have to ask you to leave the bar because a couple of the patients in the back are complaining about your perfume. Well, that's really nice, honey, but I'm not wearing any. So they need to complain about that guy sitting next to them in his polo shit and leave me the fuck alone. Oh, then they call the bouncer. And my friend and I have to leave. That's accepting, you know? No. And agencies do the same thing. Oh, we do transgender services. Oh, yeah, a transgender girl could come in there and slap them in the face and they still wouldn't know who she was. Or tell her, sit down over there and someone will be with you. It's 10 o'clock in the morning. 5.30, oh, you got to go. You should come back tomorrow. The person that you needed to see didn't come in today. 
that's transgender services. That's fair and honest and caring treatment? No. Yeah. So I do my best to fight and bitch about that shit and there's no pleasant way to go about doing that. You know? Uh-huh. They, they just don't see. They don't feel. They don't care. I'd like to ask you more about uh, transgender services more recently, but sure. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, the Stonewall riots and what that was like. You know what? It was scary. Uh, it was something that happened all the time. The police coming and shutting down bars all across the United States. Not just New York, everywhere. They come, take that nice stick, hit the door jam, the lights come on, and you streamed out. That's the routine. That's what you did. Everybody knew it. Uh, they checked for ID to see if minors were in the bar and stuff like that. And the routine started, but nobody budged. Everybody just looked at one another. And when we got our nerves together and everybody decided, okay, we're going to go out, a fight ensued. And all of this crap that I've been hearing over the years is, oh, someone threw a shoe, someone threw a Molotov cocktail, someone did something else, someone slugged a cop. I don't know what happened. All mm-hmm. I know is a fight ensued. Mm-hmm. And we were kicking their ass. So much so, they backed into the bar mm-hmm. for protection. And then the next thing you knew, the riot squad was there. Then, then it was on. And I had learned from some friends in Chicago that if you're ever in that kind of situation with the cop, do something to piss him off enough to knock you out. Because if they don't knock you out, they will continue to beat your ass so they break bones in your body, hit a rib, it punctures your lung, and you die. So I spit in his, snatched this cop's uh, mask thing, spit in his face, he knocked my black ass out. And they dragged me to the fucking truck, threw my ass in there, but I'm still here. Um, it was a mess and the interesting thing was it went on for days it wasn't just one night and, oh Stonewall that, that one it went on for days I think three or four days it, it, it went on and the funny thing was I remember hearing in my head people yelling from their apartments and stuff the girls are kicking the cops ass over at Stonewall well y'all weren't down there fighting you were yelling from your fucking safety at your window Oh, we were getting brutalized, you know, down there. But all, all, but when the parade came, couldn't find us anywhere. And I forget the name of the child that had that blue Cadillac. It was some of the rich white boy that had a blue Cadillac. Always by Stonewall. But um, in his car in the parade was a couple of the drag queens that he, he used to like to perform. None of my girls, you know. Sylvia wasn't, I didn't see Sylvia there in the front where she should have been, you know. And, you know, it's, and it's not about me. I don't give a shit whether they acknowledge or know about me. It has to do with Sylvia and Marsha were trying to take care of the community before we really knew that we needed to be taken care of, you know. They had a vision. They saw what was coming. And they did their best to protect us, to make us aware of it, you know? And so, you know, my involvement with them was always occasional because to, because of the era and the time we went through, I was an uptown girl, you know? I lived up in the 80s off Amsterdam, and they were village girls, and the girls in the West East Village were East Village girls, and they were Harlem girls. And so, even though we all had some interconnection through somebody, 
they were the two that really fought to stabilize us, you know. And so behind that, it became a matter of, well, what do we do to keep this going, you know, to maintain it? I didn't know a thing about that fucking parade until I saw it on TV. Like, someone should have told us or made us aware of what was going on, you know. And it was just, it was a hard pill to swallow, you know. And one of the things, as a black person, I've learned to realize that history is one big lie. It has to do with the person that's writing it, not about the facts that went on, you know. And perception plays 90% part in what that asshole puts down on paper. So why believe it, you know what I mean? Uh, Or get involved, you know. Uh, One of the things I think about is if you were to take a history book and pull out of it, the bullshit and the lie. Get the truth, find out what it is, and snatch out all the bullshit that's in there. You're going to wind up with two or three pages. All that 475,376 pages is crap. It's smoke that they're blowing up people's ass. And the sad thing is, people are buying it. You know? If they don't buy it, then that shit doesn't get a chance to go over. You know? So it's a thing of making sure that, you know, I'm, I'm not going to lie to my girls or, or people about it, you know. And if you ask me something, I'm going to tell you the truth, you know. And it has to do with my perception of things, not theirs or what somebody else has said, you know. Um, they aren't me. They weren't in my skin at that time to perceive anything that I perceive, you know. And, yeah, I'm older and, yeah, memory adds stuff or takes away stuff, well, that's just what it fucking does, you know? I'm still here, and fuck you. Yeah. Do you remember um, what it was like in the sort of months or years after the uh, Stonewall riots? Like, what kinds of things, for instance, um, like Sylvia and Marsha and others were doing to try to, like, take care of each other? You know, I would like to say I have an idea or a clue, but I haven't. I got busted and was went to Sing Sing for five years. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I missed all of what was going on in the city. Um, one of the interesting things about going to Sing Sing, though, was Sing Sing was like a little New York, you know. Uh, you had your pimps and your johns and your, your little hustlers and con artists and stuff. And it was like this little 42nd Street in this prison system and stuff. And uh, May I ask what you've got busted for? Attacking a john. And knocking out a cop. It was New Year's Eve. And uh, I'd gone to this party over on 6th Avenue. And I was chasing some boy uh, who I wanted really badly at the time. Being a tall girl, I thought, oh, I wanted to talk. And uh, Tex was like 6'4". And so I went over to this party to meet him running to him. And, of course, I wasn't his particular cup of tea. He liked short girls. The girl he was dating was like 5'3". I wanted to choke her. But um, I had bought this special dress, found a special dress to wear. It was um, orange and cream silk organza dress. With like scarfy, billowy kind of effect. Found these perfect shoes and shit. And I'm leaving there. I stopped at the doorway at this hotel and talked to some John for a minute. 
He gave me a card to come back later, which I was going to do. I thought I had to run over to Times Square for a minute to bring in the new year, and I'll be back. And as I'm walking down 43rd Street to go over to Times Square, this cop taps me on the shoulder and tells me, you're under arrest for prostitution. And when I didn't turn around quick enough, he grabbed at me and tore my dress. Oh, bam, turned around and knocked him out. Then I thought, oh my God, he's a cop, shit. Pew, what up running? And they caught me. <laughs> of course, did the crowd protect me? No, I ran through and they stepped, they stepped away from me like I had razor blades going out of my sides, you know. So the police just came right in between, right after me and got me and took me to jail. And I got five years. In Sing, in sing, sing. Mm-hmm. Well, five years. You go to Sing Sing first to figure out what prison they're going to send you. First they sent me to um, Comstock. Then they sent me to Greenhaven. Then they sent me to um, Attica. Then they sent me to Dannemora. It was a mess. Uh, you were saying that Sing Sing was sort of an interesting uh, it, yeah, crowd. It, yeah, well, it was. You know, it's the thing of... He's a person who lives outside the law. You know that you have to adapt to being in there and that eventually you're going to go, you know. And so the fun thing was that there are people in there that I used to run into on 42nd Street, you know, that I knew. Uh, pimps that I met up in Harlem and stuff there and doing their bids and stuff like that. Some of them knew the system well enough to be able to stay and sing sing, which gives you a chance for you to do the time and not have the time do you, you know. And so that part of it was cool. I tried to work hard with this guy so I could stay, but uh, the pull that he told me he had, he didn't have, and so they shit my black ass out. Mm-hmm. Were there other girls there also that you know? There are lots of other girls there. Yeah, lots of other girls there. You know, and uh, if the because that's how it was. You know, we we know that we're living outside the law, and you know that eventually, sooner or later, you're going to get caught. You know, and when you do, you just do your time and go back. You know. Did, did they have like a like at Rikers there was like a gay tank did they have that at uh, Sing Sing also no mm-hmm. Sing Sing was over the difference between Rikers Island which is a jail and Sing Sing which prison. is a prison there's a little more liberty and latitude in the prison system uh, even in some of the major prisons they might have a building that's just for uh, the girls but in that building because of space they would have somebody else. Like one of the spaces that they had uh, at Dan and Morris, the building was us, and on the other side <laughs> were the murderers. If you killed one or two people, you were on that side. And so and so, that was a gathering uh, together. And we would socialize together. And you, you got to learn that, okay, yes, yeah, so he killed somebody. Maybe they deserved it. You know what I mean? And so there was a sense of temperance that you learn and you take up because we don't have and didn't have the luxury to be so, I don't know, attitude or outrageous of who we are or snooty, you know. We, didn't, we, we don't have that luxury, you know. So it's a matter of, you know, adapting to and doing what you need to do and accepting people for who they are at their base level. You know, and everybody's not a crazy, insane, mad person, you know. And sometimes situations and circumstances change, you know. So you just, you know, the hard thing was meeting guys in there who had killed children. Because it's like, oh, 
I, you, nothing you can say to think of what a child would do to upset an adult enough to kill them, you know, until you have a child and they're screaming bloody fucking murdering and won't shut up. And then you think for a minute, you know, if I could just bring up that little neck. You <laughs> 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 just want a moment's peace. Just, just stop for just a moment. And you, in my mind, after raising my sons and stuff, it's like, there were moments where it was like, okay, uh, I love you, but God damn it, you know, shut the fuck up. Because in my mind, I think children are born with this one tone that God gives them that is made just for their parents that will send them to west hell inside their mind. And when it doesn't happen right away, but something will be going on and the kid will reach that note <laughs> and the hair is on your next stance up. It's like, okay, there could be a crowd of babies and you know when your baby is the one screaming. <laughs> so, you know, it's just stuff to think about. Uh, I don't want to skip over the other um, prisons that you were transferred to if you want to talk about them, but I am curious to hear about mm-hmm. Attica. Well, I wasn't in Attica for the riots. I was sent there after uh, mm-hmm. the riots. Uh, but the thing about the riots in Attica was <laughs> those guys had a all big and they should riot over stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, the abuses and stuff that you suffer, it's more than just a daily abuse. It's such, such degradation, you know. And the outcome of that is prisons, people are worried, oh, we're prisons are doing are not doing their job. The sad thing is, yes they are. They weren't made for rehabilitation and to teach you a lesson and send you back out in the world to do better. They were made to hold, separate you and contain your ass and torture, beat and abuse you to whereby you don't have enough sense to go out and commit any more crimes. Because they've taken your mind and your thought process and your sense of will from you. That's what they were made for, and that is still what they're doing. Okay, here we go. We're rolling again. Okay. Um, anyway, you said you, your friends treated you like a hot potato. Oh, honey, yeah, they treated me like a hot potato. Hmm. They just didn't understand why, what I was doing. And for me, I think it was an interesting change, uh, uh, you know, of events. You know, so I'm a dad. What's the big deal? Yeah, I had kids. So it doesn't change how the child's going to see me, you know. And um, my son accepts me for who I am, as do the other boys that I raise, and they don't have an issue with me. Mm-hmm. You know, three of them call me mom, <laughs> the other three call me dad. Well, that's on them. You know, I, they need to be comfortable with how they refer to me. I'm never going to not answer or respond, you know. Those are my children, so yeah, you know. And so in the world, with all my trans girls who call me mom and stuff, I'm not going to ignore them either. You know, whether I know them or not, y'all, you know, it's a matter of, we're a small community and we need to love one and support each other, you know, and know that there's somebody out there that cares whether we live or die, you know, that knows who we are, that isn't going to question us or berate us or, you know, disbelieve who we feel that we are. So, yeah, it was pretty interesting. And at the time that Debbie wound up having Christopher, I had a male lover, uh, Billy, and I had Debbie, and we all lived in this house I was uh, was renting in Yonkers. 
because I had to get us out of the city. The girls were just so upset you know, about stuff. So I moved. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you you left the city entirely shortly after Christopher was born. Mm-hmm. I was going to stay in the, stay in New York after my son was born. But I remember I read it, was reading in the New York Times about this 13-year-old boy that OD'd in school in the boys' bathroom mm-hmm. off of heroin. Wow. And so I ch- talked with friends and stuff and found out that, you know, at that time, you could get a bag of heroin for five bucks, you know, or a crack or whatever. So if drugs was that cheap and that available... You can't be with your children 24 hours a day. They've got to have those times for themselves. Excuse me. For themselves. And so I worried, you know, oh, God, I don't want to be home. And they call and tell me my son. This happened to my son, you know. Because you can't always know when somebody's on drugs. Some people are really good at hiding that. And everybody's routine on it isn't the same, you know. So I got scared. And I thought, well, no, I can't raise him here. And so I talked with Debbie and we decided, well, I had a grandmother who lived in California and I'd always heard that California was full of fruit, flakes, and nuts. And I thought, oh, I can fit, I can, oh, I can do all three of those. So <laughs> I moved to California, mm-hmm. you know, and went to my grandmother's. Um, to San Diego? No, to uh, Menlo Park Where's on it? the peninsula. Huh. It's 45 miles south of San Francisco. Huh. It's now Silicon Valley. Um, and what was it like there? It was nice. Like, it was a lovely little mixed neighborhood that my grandmother had lived in. She moved down there in 1964 and had been living there ever since. She owned a couple of houses in the little area uh, that she lived in. And uh, I moved in with her. She freaked the fuck out, uh, kicking me uh, in my room with uh, Christopher naked. And so I had breasts and went to West Hell ran at me in the hallway with a knife. And I was like, oh, God, is it ever, you know, is it ever going to change? You know, but, uh, so after that confrontation, my parents came down to California from Chicago and explained to her what was going on, packed her shit up, (laughs) took her with them back to Chicago, you know. And then Debbie came out, and Debbie and I tried to make it together as a couple with Christopher there. <clears throat> that didn't work out, so she wound up going back to New York. But the amazing and wonderful thing was she left Christopher with me. Yeah. And uh, that was such a blessing. Um, and yeah, so what was it like living there? Did you have like a community of people? or No, it was just like... me and my son. Mm-hmm. I couldn't take the chance on, you know, being out or letting somebody in mm-hmm. out of fear of, you know, what are they going to do with this transgender woman raising a male son? You know, I, I I know how people think, and I know what how fearful they are and how stupid they think. You know, and later as he got older as a teenager, I've had people tell me, "Well, what are you you know raising your your own lover?" No, Charlie's my son, you asshole. And you need to think about this: pedophiles are straight guys, punk. I'm so far from straight, you could you could bend me around to you, you know? <laughs> Where does this come from, you know? And did they get it? No, they don't get it. You know? And so after, you know, I had other boys, it was just, 
they would always just watch. Uh, <laughs> they would just watch us, you know, out the corner of their eye. That, I don't know what that is with those children, but we need to watch that, you know. <laughs> and the interesting thing was I was so concerned about my kids being in school and what the other children would do to them once they find out who their dad was. And the funny thing was, the kids were always cool. Yeah, interesting. And my sons always took good care of me in the sense of they didn't, wouldn't discuss me with anybody. And if they had a really close friend, they would test them to see if whether or not they could bring them home with them mm-hmm. to meet me. And so the few kids that they did manage to bring home were really chill kids. The problem came up when the kids would be at home with their parents going, Christopher's dad is a woman. She is so cool. What, honey? (laughs) So they ran to the school to complain. The school knew who I was. And all they could tell them was, she, he, whatever you want to call, Major's a good parent. You know, and make it take good care of his son, and your child is safe and fine there. You know, but I don't want my child playing with that child. Yeah, well, that's on you, and you have to tell them. So they would tell their children, don't come play with my son. But they would come over anyway, would use the back door, hop some fences, and still come over. So you're living in like a, a, a sort of suburban area, like a full like was it a house? Uh, it was it was it was a house. You know, um, I wound up having to move into an apartment after my parents moved out to California, because uh, they came out there to <laughs> raise my son and told me what we'll do is we'll pay for you to get an apartment in San Francisco, and you go there and do your little fag thing, and uh, we'll raise your son for you. Well, you know what? If I was a fag, that would be really an interesting proposition. But as a woman, I'm not leaving my baby with you crazy people. You know, look what you did to me. <laughs> and watch my mother's face come together. <laughs> and after that, I to tell them, Charles, on the kid, I'm fine. <laughs> This is not your fault. This is a blessing behind the bullshit that you did. <laughs> they never got it. You know, it's like, oh, it's a phase Major's going through. He'll grow out of it. Okay. She, when she died, I was 60. She's still waiting for that next year. Next year, you're going, you're right, baby. Next year, you'll be dead, and I'm going to be a man. <laughs> so I was like, okay, got to keep a sense of humor, y'all. What were you uh, doing for money when you were raising kids? Um, I drove a rig uh, part, uh, part-time on weekends. Yeah, I made deliveries up and down California uh, for this uh, real estate business who every week sent new listings and stuff in this book, this magazine with the house and the description and the realtor to call and stuff. And... Um, Every Friday, I would uh, drive over to Pleasanton, pick up my truck, and drive my truck down to San Diego, dropping off these magazines, and then come back. And sometimes I took Christopher with me. And once they gave me my own truck uh, to use, I put his toys, hung them off the dashboard, I blocked off the seat, uh, the passenger seat, took it out so he had room to play and move around, and took him with me sometimes. Did you know other trans women who drove trucks? I feel like this has cropped up for me. I met, I met one. 
sex change trans person and she was driving the truck and nobody knew she was a sex change but everybody thought she was this big bull dyke and she had nice haircut nice little wavy short haircut tapered at the neck and just she looked like a weightlifter muscles like the women that you see on those wrestling shows and stuff like that not the ones where they're pretty but the big brute ones you know what I mean and she looked like that and so everybody just assumed she was you know she was a dyke and when she saw me uh, she came over she came, <laughs> she came with me while I was putting gas in my truck and she says well they've hired you kind of people the fuck you mean she said oh you're lippy too and she started laughing I said Lady, you know what? I have no problem fighting some woman. She, and she said, well, if I were a woman, you definitely wouldn't have a problem with it. And then we both fell out. <laughs> no! Stop! <laughs> you know? So every now and then, I would see her or pass her to her truck somewhere and stuff. Yeah, she was really, really, really cool. Mm. But she's the only one I ever, ever met. Mm. You know? Interesting. And the funny thing was that she told me that what she really missed uh, about driving a truck before her change is glory holes. That's like, oh girl, yeah. <laughs> what would I do without the holes? <laughs> what was her name? Oh, I can't remember. I can't remember. Mm. Yeah. But I can see her, I know her face, and oh, she was so cool. Mm-hmm. Talk about a brick shit house. That bitch was built. <laughs> So, um, how long was your, how long were you living there and driving a truck? How long was your life like that for? Um, God, let me see. When I moved out there, Christopher was a baby. When my parents moved out there, Christopher was four. We moved because my parents wanted to raise Christopher and take over. So, I just packed my son up and moved. And my theory through my whole life has been, if it don't fit in my car, it can stay. <laughs> so I put Christopher in first. <laughs> then loaded up his stuff. And whatever stuff of mine, I could get in it, you know. And I only buy big cars. I don't, I don't buy and none of this new shit. I don't buy nothing newer than 78. That's as high as I go. Uh, except for now, I, at Little Rock, I have a... 2005 Chevy Tahoe, which isn't little, so it's cool. And it's not one of those ones where you need a jumble jam to climb up into it. You know, it's a regular size SUV, but it's cool, and I'm happy with it. It does all the new whistle and blowing and beating things, so that's cool. Yeah. But the, after we did that, I wanted to move into an apartment uh, with some friends got it from me, and then Christopher and I moved all over when he was. Six, uh, friend of mine has found a job and a place for me up in San Francisco, and I moved up there. That's when I wound up with my second son, one of the hookers in the building. I was the night manager for. Mm-hmm. Uh, left her son with me. She said she was going to be going down south. I think it was for Thanksgiving to visit her, her family, and they didn't know she had any children, so she didn't want to take her son with her. But she got down there. And she called and told me that she met some guy. She fell in love. He doesn't know that she has children. Could I keep Daryl, you know, till she comes back? Uh, yeah, of course, not no big deal. You found love, go for it. Yeah. And um, she never came back. Yeah. yeah. 
So when I moved with Christopher to Santa Cruz, he moved with us. Mm. You know, in Santa Cruz, I read another hooker, wound up with her kid, then the four of us, <laughs> and a couple of years moved to San Diego. So I've been all over. I've been all over. So you ended up in, in San Francisco in like the mid-80s, is that right? Like I, yes. Because I was, I was in San Francisco when uh, they uh, turned out City Hall over the verdict over Dan White. Okay, they so... They were turning over the cars. And yeah, stuff. I was like in the late... Yeah. 80, that late uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I was there for that. And I took my sons up there with me so they could see what injustice <coughs> can do, what it has the possibilities of. Mm-hmm. And if there were just a way, I don't know, at that time to harness that and change those facts out of the point of view about my girls and help us fight through who we were mm-hmm. would have been a good thing. Mm-hmm. But of course, there wasn't. They were concerned about their little Castro area, and that was it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was kind of sad. So you were there for how long? Oh, God. I don't remember when I lived up there. I know Christopher got to seven. I was still living there, and every year since he was two, I sent him to New York to Debbie for his birthday, which is in August. And um, she'd have him for two weeks and then send him back because she'd take her vacation at that time. And this one year, she didn't send him back. I drove to the airport to pick him up, and he didn't get off the plane. And uh, <laughs> I wound up snatching the stewardess. <laughs> Because I thought she lost my son. <laughs> but she told me that he was never put on the plane, that she didn't put him on the plane. And so um, I went crazy for a while. And um, that's when I moved down back down to Santa Cruz and uh, took the kids that I had with me there. Then I met, uh, I found out from my parents that a lady I knew years ago told me that she had a son by me and was living in Utah. So I went there to see him. I never knew whether or not he was my son, natural born son or not. But um, he took to me and I him, so I adopted him. And then we went back to California because mm-hmm. I couldn't stay in Utah. They burnt my Cadillac up in Utah. Oh, wow. Wrote nigger on the house I was uh, renting and stuff. So I was like, let me get the fuck out of here, you know. It was horrible, more horrible there than it's been in the South, you know. So. Oh, shit. Um, oh. Anyway, so uh, you eventually ended up in uh, San Diego. Yes, yeah, yeah, I wound up down there. Um, and how long were you in San Diego for? I was in for San Diego to... 95, 96, okay. something right there, uh, because uh, my lover from San Francisco moved down there with me. His family was from there, which is why I moved down there. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was dying of AIDS, and he wanted to see them before he died. So uh, we went down there. And, of course, he was 30 years younger than me, uh, because <laughs> it's hard to find somebody older than me. <laughs> and I ain't dating nobody my age, so. <laughs> so while we were there, I got to meet his family. They were not happy that uh, I was his partner. He was a vet. He died at the VA. And uh, I got the VA hospital to start an AIDS garden. 
which they were really reticent to do. But um, I kept pushing, and they kept getting more and more vets with AIDS that they wound up having to start a unit. And so rather than call it the AIDS unit, they called it the special, um, special disease unit and never told anybody that that's what the, that the disease was. But I got to know a lot of vets uh, this time. Um, again, me and veterans uh, who had AIDS and started socializing and stuff with them and trying to help their families deal with what was going on. Um, and so I thought that, you know, there needs to be some kind of memorial for the families to have because they won't tell their friends that their son died of AIDS and they don't want anybody to know. So I thought, well, maybe if there was a garden on the, at the VA, you know, where the families will know that that's what the garden's for and nobody else will know. It took me a year, but I convinced them to do it. And so they started a garden there. And um, last time I checked, it's still there. Except now it's full of, they've had to spread it out because mm-hmm. so many, so many people. Yeah, I I wanted to ask, um, like in those like years in the early and mid eighties, like mm-hmm. sort of what your, you know, to what your awareness was or what it looked like when um, AIDS started taking hold. Well, you know what it looked like was being, as I am now, a seventy year old person whose friends start dying off. You know, I mean, I think about the regular community other than my own um, where like my parents and their parents get to this age and they usually knew people from when they were in grammar school mm-hmm. you know and so as a trans person I don't have that connection but I know that pain that they went through when their friends started dying off like say for my grandmother and she felt alone you know like why was she still here and all of her close friends were dead you know and so that period of time is what it felt like in New York for all us gay people and stuff like that. Because you can meet somebody on Monday and they'd be dead by Thursday. So why meet anybody? You know what I mean? Why get to know them if they're going to die? You know? And uh, they didn't care. You know what I mean? Guys are in the hallway on gurneys at the hospital here dying and stuff. And when they would die, someone just walked down the hall, covered their head up with a sheet, and keep on walking. You know, I don't know when they would move them, but, you know. And so it was a frightening, frightening time, you know. And the thing was that, oddly enough, being here and seeing what was going on, everybody's jumping up and down and claiming that this shit started in the 80s. It started way before that because I remember getting out of prison here and in 1976 I met a guy who had Casey's sarcoma on the bottom of his feet and in the palm of his hands. Nowhere else. And they didn't know what it was, couldn't figure out how how he had gotten it or where it came from. And from my thinking and what I saw happening, that was the start of this AIDS thing, you know. Now, did they want to go back to 1976 and work it out? No, of course not. The, these educational-ass motherfuckers who, well, this is when we say it started, and that's true, and all that other stuff didn't matter. Yeah, it matters when you think about what the 
incubation was considered to be at the time, mm-hmm. 15 to 20 years. Well, if you take it from 76 back 15 to 20 years, that's World War II. Mm-hmm. So with all the shit that Hitler was doing and experimenting and that doctor escaped and got away, we don't know where this guy started and began, you know. And so we wound up paying for it, you know, mm-hmm. now. Yeah, that's interesting. I've read like uh, reports about studies in the last like couple years or so that now folks think that it may have started in New York City around like the, in the early nineteen seventies. Although of course it may well have gone back. Yeah, me too. Further, and it's that. just from living here and, and, and being around it, and, you know, and that kind of stuff. Um, you know. Did you know, notice other people, or did other folks like notice folks with with chaos or other like symptoms? You know what? At the time, they noticed it, but child, they were more interested in sucking dick, getting drink, getting high. None of that other stuff matters. And the only reason, for me personally, that I noticed it and stuff like that, because the um, at the time, in starting out like what your cup of tea is and who you like to cruise, um, first there were redheads, then it was blondes, then it was guys with blue eyes, and then I got to the point of, oh, child, just be breathing, you know? And now that I've gotten older, just be warm. <laughs> you know? So, I would notice it because the white guys that I was chasing at that time, some of them had it and some of them didn't. And being a hedonist that I am, when I'm with a, per- a male person or a female, as I've learned I can do, um, I am interested in, it's the person I'm making love to, not their genitalia. So whether they have a dick or a pussy doesn't matter to me. It's who the person is and who, what body contains them. So I'm going to rub and touch and be a part of them from the bottom of their feet to the top of their head. Well, in doing that kind of exploratory thing by touching and holding an intimacy that I feel is our connection to other people, you know. So in doing that is when I got to notice that some people had those where like the, they'd be just in the center of their palm or just in the arch of their foot versus somebody who had it and it was their entire foot or, and not in their hands. And then pay attention to how they moved and took care of themselves. Uh, because my thing with people is like I like to watch guys walk. You know, and there's a certain attitude, a carriage there that I find intriguing and turns me on. Um, I like pay attention to how people talk to me or to one another, how engaged they are in that, you know. And so in noticing and being around those things, you get this a sense of something's not right or they're kind of off, you know, because I would see them like in their stride, you know, hitting it, just being, and they'll see them again and doesn't feel the same. Something's, something's missing. Uh, they may not be standing up as straight or their gait might not be as strong and as confident as it was when I saw them before. And so in my mind, I just hmm, pay attention to that and set it aside. Mm. And then the next thing I knew, they're sick and in the hospital. So I, in my head, I just put all that together. Oh, has to do something to do with this. Mm-hmm. So that's how I got there. 
Um, and so in the 80s, did you or other people that you know like get involved in um, either doing service My work? My son was born. I didn't have time. You know, um, I left here because of all the drama. And when I came back here and noticed all this, um, I came back because Debbie um, had gotten pregnant by some guys she was seeing and wanted to have an abortion. Mm-hmm. And she was afraid to go alone, so I came back uh, to be with her. I brought Christopher, and uh, we stayed here for a couple of years. And that's when I got to pay attention to everything, you know, what was going on and stuff. So, yeah, it was a weird thing. And, of course, no one wanted to touch these guys. So I wound up doing home health care, cooking for them and stuff. Because as a hooker and a prostitute, I know that you're not going to get it from touching them. And I'm not going to be turning a trick with them. They don't want me. So it was safe for me to clean their clothes and cook for them. And I remember being around and watching their families go from, ooh, don't touch that glass, don't drink behind them, uh, to where. And then the ones that tried to care would come around until it got to that countdown phase, you know, uh, where it was obvious that, that they had it and they were 10, 9, 8. Well, by 8, the families, they were full. I mean, they just couldn't handle it. And so they would hire somebody to come in and be with their person at the time. And so that's what I wound up doing. And a lot of the girls wound up doing that uh, because, oddly enough, it was our first job job. Legitimate job. We had to pay taxes on that money. And who knew taxes? What? <laughs> you know? But um, it changed our life as far as what side of the law we were on mm-hmm. of this thing happening. And uh, from there, a lot of us wound up learning jobs and being able to understand what a job was and that we could do something else because of the fear mm-hmm. at the time. And so we wound up stepping up from being home health care persons to outreach workers and then um, people who talk to other people about AIDS and safe sex and getting legitimate pay for that from some nonprofit and stuff like that which changed where we were then all of a sudden getting an opportunity to step up and be the co-founder of whatever mm-hmm. and so it changed our economic security and it changed the perception of us but only to us that's really interesting. Yeah, um, yeah I didn't know that so many uh, like tra- trans women sort of got into employment through home health care. That's how it started. Huh, yeah. Interesting. Um, and so what did your sort of career trajectory look like from there? Well, from there, uh, I, after I went, you know, after there was a number back to uh, California, I wound up working for the San Diego AIDS Foundation and at first I became the uh, patient liaison. Then I became the, um, I did uh, searching for funding to get uh, companies and businesses to pay for tickets to take the guys that they, to a movie premiere or take them out to dinner somewhere at a restaurant that they would never have been able to afford, you know what I mean? And talk the restaurant into letting them come there and not for those that come there, they're going to infect the whole restaurant and I'm going to have to shut down. And so I wound up doing that for a while. Uh, and then I wound up starting my own organization down there called Angels for Care, where I hired people to take care of guys in those final phases. Mm-hmm. And so Angels for Care, their, their logo was Countdown Family. 
and so we would help the family count down you know, until they pass away. And the sad thing about that was watching these guys die, you know, and what their partners went through, and then have the guy who died family come in and throw that partner out and take everything, greedy motherfuckers. These guys lived together 10, 15 years, bought this stuff together, they're a family unit, and the family would just, well, I'm his mom, and I want all this stuff, it's in his name, and fuck you. No, wow. Time and time again. Wow, yeah. And so, what I wanted to do behind that was if I worked with any trans girl, I made them give me power of attorney, so that the family came in, like, oh, well, I'm taking all her stuff. No, she left it to me, and you can't have it. Now, if you want, I will have somebody put it all in the middle of the street and set it on fire. <laughs> so they left me alone. <laughs> so I would sell all that shit that I would get and then give it to an agency that was trying to help people get along and stuff like that. And I got sued a couple of times by a couple of their, couple of their parents because this boy left me his BMW and uh, they let me know the niggers shouldn't be driving around in wow. BMWs. Wow, really? Well, the funny thing is, I don't need this little tiny-ass fucking BMW because my Cadillac is sitting over there. Oh, and looking at it, it's bigger than your Lincoln. Hmm. <laughs> Rough world. Mm-hmm. Rough. How, how long did you do that for? Oh, God, about six years. Mm-hmm. And then I uh, had to leave San Diego because my parents got sick and I went up there to help take care of them. Yeah. Um, oh, your parents were in Chicago? Like, no, were they? they were in Menlo Park. Oh, that's right. My okay, grandmother's sorry. house. Mm-hmm. Um, so then you moved up there. Yeah. Um, so that was in the 90s at this point? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what did, did you just take care of your parents? Or were you no, I came up there and I, went, I got a job in San Jose at the um, San Francisco... Uh, AIDS Corporation as an outreach worker mm-hmm. and then I went up to San Francisco and started working for TARC Tenderloin AIDS Research Project mm-hmm. so I wound up doing all that um, what was that like? it was cool because it was in the heart of the Tenderloin in San Francisco and it was an agency that catered to the transgender community which was so new mm-hmm. and so wonderful I got to know hundreds of girls and stuff mm-hmm. up there and uh, wound up going from being <laughs> an outreach worker to the transgender consultant because they had a psychiatrist there to talk to the girls after they would get a positive diagnosis. This child didn't no, long, no longer know how to talk to us than the man in the fucking moon. And so a couple of the girls uh, told them that when they came there to see him, they said, well, I'm going to wait here the major comes and I'm going to talk to her. And so she said, well, why are you going to talk to Major? Because, well, because Major, I can talk to Major. I'm not talking to that idiot. Oh, okay. So because of funding, uh, with he was seeing clients, they fired him and they hired me. And so from there, it's just one step right after another, taking care of my girls and making sure the community was okay. So you did mostly sort of counseling stuff? Yeah, in the beginning I did more counseling. Then I opened a building next door to TARC, became available. They rented that building. I took it over for my community and had a transgender center there. 
And uh, when they saw how well that was doing, they fired me and took it over and turned it into a cafe for the fags that were coming oh, in there. Wow. Yeah, it was a big mess. And the girls ranted and raved, and they were going to stop going, but we can't, you can't do that because you need the services that they have to provide to keep them safe. So I wound up working for another nonprofit down there and brought them over to that uh, facility for not counseling, but for group meetings mm-hmm. and stuff like that. What was the support non- groups. What was the nonprofit? It was the Ark of Refuge, City of Refuge Church. Oh. And I uh, started working for them and got to know their uh, pastor, Yvette Thunder. And through her, I got to do uh, other stuff down there. And then I ran their AIDS project for a while. Mm-hmm. So, then my folks got sicker, so I, instead of being there four days a week, I wanted to be in there three. But it worked out okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Worked out okay. Um, I want to, I have a few more things I want to ask you about, but I also want to be mindful of time since we've been talking for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, okay, so I want to, uh, like, uh, I have more questions I would like to ask about this period. Was there, <laughs> was there any particular work you did sort of around AIDS and service providing and like working with other um, girls that like you, would, you were especially like proud of or thought was like an especially, especially important work? All of it was mm. to me. Nothing, nothing stood out more than the other. I mean, this thing was so devastating, and not only did gay guys not want us around, but hospitals didn't want to take care of us. A couple of girls got sick and collapsed in stores, and the paramedics would come and go, "Oh, it's one of them." They drove off. Mm. I mean, and not just in San Francisco, but all over. The girl in Texas died. You know, so it was just a mess. So to me, everything I did, you know, for them was important to them. I don't give a shit what it meant to, you know, anybody else. I mean, you know, because I didn't have time to worry about that, you know, uh, because it, it's, the needs of, it's the needs of my community that are important, you mm-hmm. know, and I'll hop over 20 motherfuckers to make sure one of my girls is safe, you know, because we have suffered so long, so hard, so often, and so intently that if we get a chance to get just a moment's break, if I can provide that, I'm going to give it to them, you know, and if I can, yeah, I'm older and traveling my ass off, it's exhausting, I really should be just resting, taking care of my black ass. But I can't because everybody's, my girls aren't safe, you know. And the trans guys have it a little bit easier. It's not great for them either, especially the black trans guys. Because one of the things that winds up happening is after they transition and they become black men, there's that whole stigma that they never knew about as their persona and growing up as the females that they were not the man that they were going to be. Mm-hmm. And so once they're making that decision, all of a sudden they become that black man, you know, changes their entire focus, you know what I mean? All of a sudden, the things that you thought were going to be available to you as a man are taken from you because you're a black man, mm-hmm. you know. And so then there's a, that drama to deal with, you know. So for me, it becomes a matter of making sure that they have the strength and the wherewithal and the courage to face that shit and go forward, you know, and that one of the things 
the important thing that I feel my life has for my community is negotiating through the rest of this world, not anonymously, but safely. Because just who we are, we're never anonymous. You know, a trans couple or person can go into a room full of people and just are walking in the door changes the aura of the entire event. Whether we ever see it or anybody ever say something, someone's going to look and notice and it's going to alter cosmically everything. Um, and you, um, at some point later, uh, started getting involved in prison uh, work. Mm-hmm. In San Francisco. Yeah. Well, I got involved with that because I was <laughs> calling myself going to retire first out mm-hmm. and the guy Alex Lee who was running uh, tip at the time uh, was trying to vocalize he was a lawyer and help trans people from getting these enormous sentences they were giving a girl five years if she had more than four bags of condoms mm-hmm. four condoms in her purse really how stupid is that you know what I mean? Especially in San Francisco. What the hell? So justice and fair play, that shit doesn't exist. You know? You want fair, here's a quarter, go jump on a bus. You know, because any other kind of fair don't exist in this world. And so getting involved with that, it was good to be and work with somebody who was interested in saving my girls from the prison system, helping them get out of it if they could, and if they came out, helping give them a direction and purpose, which I was already good at because everything in my life led me up to that. And so through him, I got to be a legal surrogate and could go into the prisons and talk to them privately, not in a waiting room where people would hackle them and point at them and berate them, privately in a little office just her and me and talk to her. And through that, I wound up helping some of the girls get their sentences cut with Alex, um, getting stays on different stuff, you know, helping them through the parole board and things like that. And then when they come out, <coughs> helping them find lodging and some kind of employment, you know, um, scarce as that was, you know, but something, you know, and sometimes it was a success in the course, sometimes it wasn't, you know. you have to help people that want to be helped and you can't save everybody you know? but you say you can get save the girls that want to be saved you know and that's what got me going uh, and are, are you still doing that kind of work no I turned I, when I retired and left San Francisco mm-hmm. I turned the agency over to one of my daughters who I had raised and trained and taught what to do and she's carrying it forward mm-hmm. um, so how long were you working uh I'm sorry, I'm forgetting what it's now called. The, um, it's the TGIJP. TGIJP. Transgender, Gender Variant, and Intersex Justice Project. Um, how long were you, were you working with them for? I don't remember. Over mm-hmm. five years. I was a student, something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, what's your life look like in the, the years since? Well, now that I'm in... Little Rock, I'm trying to get another organization, retirement too. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to get another agency started to uh, for the girls that live in the South mm-hmm. to help them uh, stabilize, learn what their history is, for the younger girls to realize whose shoulders that they're standing on, for things to be as comfortable as they feel that it is 
now uh, that they can run and jump on planes with their ID and dress up in the attire that they choose and shop and live and work and negotiate through society with some relatives safely. That there are girls who died, got beat up and murdered and killed and for them to be able to do that now. And I noticed that a lot of these young girls feel that, well, the damn it's always been like that. Well, yeah, Miss Dan, you're 20 something fucking years old. It wasn't like this 30 years ago. Mm. You know, somebody suffered for you to get here. And these are the people that did it. So I want them to know just what their history is. So in the, with the organization that I'm starting, I'm starting it so that they can see what that is and get a sense of pride about who they are, that they're way more than flitting around right now, being all cutesy, running the bars, doing whatever the hell it is they're doing, enjoying their youth. Mm-hmm. There's a history here. There's a culture of who we are. You know, there's things about your history to be proud of, you know, that we're not these random things running around like maniacs with nowhere to go and nothing to do. So I have someone working on for building a library for me, for Gigi, in order to show what our history is. And the child has found transgender people all the way back to 1670. Mm-hmm. You know, and for me, how wonderful to see what a girl had to go through back then. Because at the time, women were wearing clothes up to their chin and dresses down to the floor. What an easy way to be a trans person, you know what I mean? So all you had to do was learn how to apply makeup and figure out how to move softly and delicately and and not be a guy and brutally tear up the world as you walk from one one corner to another. And so what that must have been like, you know, what they went through. And to see them, you know, she's found pictures and stuff, to see them. And so I think that would be a sense of encouragement because it's way more than color, you know. That's been a a problem with all kinds of things. But the thing is that for us, it's way more than color, you know, Uh, because like with black trans girls and white trans girls, most black trans girls transition early because we have to be <coughs> tuned to ourselves and our families and what's going on. So we know at 10, 11, 12 what's going on and trying to figure out what to do to do this and not destroy our family unit. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the white trans women, they don't transition to 30, 40. Yeah. I met a lady in San Francisco that transitioned at 65 years old. Mm-hmm. And it was just so wonderful talking with her and helping her through it because she'd been a trans person her entire life. And what she wound up doing was when she would go on job interviews or things for her work, she'd get in drag in the hotel where she would go to, you know, and find transvestite groups and run to a meeting at night in the cover of darkness. Mm-hmm. Well, because nobody could know. You know, and then what they do, they, they do that, then they get back, and before they go home, they burn that stuff or give it away or throw it out a window. And next year they go to another town and have to buy all that stuff all over again, you know, instead of getting an opportunity to get something that you like and keep with you back and forth. Mm-hmm. I've had trans women, older white trans women, who've had a suitcase that they would take with them everywhere. And one day the wife goes, why do you take this with you everywhere and open it up and faint? <laughs> <laughs> You know, you're never doing this again, Harold. Oh, God. 
you know, so it's just with that difference, those things are to be taken into consideration. And you can't judge them with, well, my life is harder than yours. It doesn't matter how hard it matters that it's hard at all. And that's what shouldn't be. It shouldn't be hard. You know? how, how did you end up in Little Rock specifically? I went there for viewing of the documentary. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is something about the aura of the city that simply made me feel comfortable mm-hmm. and accepted. And it had nothing to do with the people or the venue of seeing the documentary. It simply had to do with being in Little Rock. Um, having been uh, an ex-convict and stuff like that, I'm very cautious about my space. And as a trans person, I don't want anybody sneaking up on me. So whenever I go to any public spaces or venues, I sit with my back against the wall and I face the door so I, I see everyone who comes in to feel who's a threat to me and who isn't. And everywhere. I've been doing this since I got out of prison. In Little Rock, after the viewing, the group took me to some little bar to have an after-party thing. And they told me to have a seat and they would go get me you know, some soda or something. And I sat down in the middle of the restaurant with my back to the door. And when they brought me the soda, I looked at them and the person looked up and said hi to somebody who came in the door. I turned and looked and saw this person walking in and realized I was sitting in the middle of the room and the door was behind me. Mm-hmm. And what made me sit here? They didn't issue me to this spot. I walked in first, looked around, and sat there. Oh, wow. And it fucked my shit up. When I got back to the hotel, I was, I was pacing all night long. What the fuck happened? Why did I sit there? What's going on with me? What's happening here? Why does it feel like this? Okay, the next day I flew back to San Francisco. I'm in San Francisco and I'm talking to my lover going, I don't know what the fuck happened back there. That city was really fucking weird. And it's not even the goddamn people. I need to go there and see what's going on. We're going to go there for a week. Test it out. Then talking with him a couple of days later, wait a minute, I don't ever test out anything. I just leap off the bridge. <laughs> so, fuck it. I'm going to move there. I moved there. Wow. And been happier than shit ever since. Bought a house. I couldn't have bought a house in San Francisco. You know, the boss has a barn. The barn is going to be my organization. We're working on transforming that into a, a comfortable socializing space. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've gotten my 501c3. Sharon is helping me write grants for funding. And I'm going to create a living Bible praise for transgender and gender nonconforming people all over. I'm going to start with the girls in the South. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember if, if you said, um, does the organization have a name? Yes, the Griffin Gracie Historical uh, Retreat and Resource Center. Mm-hmm. We have a website. It's houseofggs.com. Mm-hmm. G-G-S. Not G-I or G-E-E. Fuck all that mamby-pamby bullshit. Just G-G. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Um, I think we could probably um, 
uh, wrap up since we've been going okay, for I'm a good. while. And, Whatever you have to um, is there anything that um, we haven't talked about that you'd want to be able to get on the recording? I no, whatever you ask is fine. I mean, mm-hmm. the the documentary thing is really it doesn't delve into interpersonal stuff that you might have asked me. Uh, but the documentary is a good caption of how I've survived and made it mm-hmm. since my involvement with who I was and my connection to my community. And uh, it's a very comfortable and interesting thing. Uh, it's got a lot of good reviews. I made it for my community to have so they can realize that they can do this too, you know, that I'm not some, I'm not no special angel. I'm just one of the girls trying to make it better for other girls, you know, and to keep my community and the gender nonconforming people safe, you know, because uh, they may not be trans people, but they're fighting the status quo, you know, and things are hard for them, and they're fighting this pronoun usage, you know, they, us, we, I, you know, they, see, that's just so cool. It's hard sometimes for me to remember, (laughs) but, you know, it's hard for people to remember for their families to call their trans son Greta. Yeah, so it's hard, but that doesn't mean I won't get it, or that I don't appreciate and love them for who they are and the struggles that they have. Yeah, so no, I can't. Uh, I think of anything. I think the thing is, if they do see the documentary, to keep in mind what happened <laughs> to me in my life to get that phrase to come out of my face now. Because behind everything that is said or I'm talking about, there's a history to all of that, mm-hmm. you know, which is the part that can't be in a documentary, you know. But uh, when they meet me or talk to me or see me or, or interview my YouTube, if they think of something, they can always ask me, mm-hmm. yeah. Because I, when I see it, and I've seen it like 19 times when I go to different places, I watch it every time because something always pops up that I didn't catch before. Mm-hmm. And knowing that it's me isn't even what's important to me. What's important to me is the things that I think about. Why did I say that? Oh, God. Mm-hmm. I remember when so-and-so did this. And, and in my head, I go on talking to myself and miss half the movie. Mm-hmm. And have to see it again. <laughs> so, and something else will stick in my craw. You know, so. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time. This is really wonderful. It was nice talking about you, darling. And thank you for sharing. This is really amazing. Oh, I hope so. I was like, God, I don't know, y'all. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>